stop and take a trip down on my block when you see hidden potential young minds sharper than pencil and ain't afraid to speak they mind if they got something against you we standing with you we tackle issues like civic pride hate will cease to exist let's put our differences aside from my side to your side from dutch town to south side from penrose to north side from benton park to old north to west end the west side we bless when we step out we stand down rise up stand together wise up this is Stitch Cast Studio, produced by St. Louis Story Stitchers in St. Louis, Missouri. This is episode 30, titled Sex Education. Youth leaders discuss the stigmas around STIs, pregnancy, and also safe sex practices with Dr. Ebony Carter, recorded live in our very own Zoom room. Strap in and check it out. They say who that, but you already knew that. That beat them Story Stitchers. Story Stitchers. Story Stitchers. Story Stitchers. Story Stitchers. Hey everybody, thank you so much for joining us today for another episode of Stitchcast Studio, um, Story Stitchers podcast. Um, you already know it's your girl Emira here, um, program director of Story Stitchers. Um, today we're going to talk about uh, sex ed with some of our um, very, very knowledgeable and wise youth council members and with a very special guest we have today um miss ebony carter or dr ebony carter i should say um and if you don't mind really quick can you just give us a little bit about yourself um what you do you know maybe how long you've been in the field you know just a little bit uh, so that people can kind of get familiar with you Sure. Um, so as you said, my name is Ebony Carter. I am a high-risk obstetrician at Barnes Jewish Hospital and a faculty member at Washington University School of Medicine. Um, so I practice high-risk obstetrics. So if a woman is pregnant and she is too sick to go to her regular OBGYN, let's say that she just got diagnosed with cancer and needs to get chemotherapy during her pregnancy, or she has kidney disease or heart disease or anything that makes mom sick and more complicated, she would come to me or if her baby has an issue, like let's say the baby has a hole in its heart, it would come to me. So any any complication of pregnancy I take care of. So I really kind of uh, take care of the result of sex more than like the sexually transmitted infection. Um, but in my prior life, before I moved to St. Louis to get more training in high risk obstetrics, I was a general obstetrician and gynecologist and treated lots of STIs. So um, I'm really excited to be here with all of you all this evening so we can talk. Cool. Well, again, thank you so much um, for for coming. That's really interesting to really know like kind of like the full spectrum of what you do and what you did. And I guess we'll just start it out really simple with the question, what is an STI? Okay, so an STI is stands for a sexually transmitted infection. Um, and so, you know, you're not supposed to define something with the words of the definition, but that's kind of it. So it's any um, infection or disease that you can get as a result of sexual contact. And I think it's important to note that it's not just sexual contact because of penetration. It's any it's any surface that has mucosa. So that could be vaginal, it could be oral or in your mouth, it could be anal. Um, so any kind of mucosal or wet soft surface, um, contact in that way can result in a sexually transmitted infection. Good to know, because I know when I was growing up and going to school, they, for the longest, we heard STD. And then I think it was like senior year of high school was when I heard somebody use the term STI. 
So is there a difference or the same thing or, you know, what changed or, you know, kind of mm -hmm. along that line? All right. Well, I know we have a sex educator on the line. Anybody else want to take a stab at it before I do? Yes, please. I love right. this question. <laughs> so, to my understanding, I got certified in March of this year. So to my understanding, there is no difference between an STD and an STI. It's just the language that we use to destigmatize. So to my understanding, um, a STD, we stop using the language STD because people hear disease and they think that they're sick and they're gross and they're disgusting. But an infection is something that can be treated. So, you know, in, in the hospital medically, I tend to use the term STI, sexually transmitted infection. Um, and, you know, when you think about an infection, it may or may not actually cause consequences. A lot of people are totally asymptomatic, have an infection and they don't even realize it. Um, disease to me means more like there's a manifestation, right? So that, you know, it's not HIV, which kind of comes first, but it's progressed to AIDS or it's not um, a human papillomavirus that can cause either Either, you know, warts or cervical cancer. Um, so, you know, I, they are in general used interchangeably. Okay, good to know. Good to know. I know some other people that probably on here, some people that listen probably want to know that. How would you define consent? Um, so, and actually before I take a stab at it, does anybody else want to talk about what consent means to them? Consent is basically like both people been in agreement with it. Yeah, I would say um, definitely. I was always taught that it has to be, you need to be very vocal and verbal, you know what I'm saying? When you're in, you know, that type of situation. So, yeah. Yeah. I was always, um, the way that I understand consent is that it goes even further than just um, when it comes to sexual contact with somebody. Um, there's a lot of other situations in which consent is important whenever interacting with anyone. I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, I even teach it to my children now, like when they're interacting, when they're touching each other. Um, I, I actually ask, like, you know, was that actually okay with her? Was that was that a problem, like from early on? So I think consent is very important and, and yes meaning yes and no meaning no. The other thing that Alex said earlier that I wanted to go back to um, is the stigma and the shame that goes along with having an STI. So I've had patients come to me who are just devastated, either because they didn't know that something else had happened with their partner or they're just ashamed of what's happening. And so I always try to lighten the situation and say, you know, one of the most common, common STIs that happens and they're like, what? And I'm like, pregnancy, right? When you look at, at a 30-year-old woman who's pregnant walking around, you don't look at her and say, mm, I can't believe she... Anybody who got pregnant can have an STI. Um, and there, there's no shame in that. It can happen to any of us. So sex can be something that is wonderful and beautiful, but it also has consequences. And we need to make sure that we are taking care of our bodies and protecting ourselves if we decide to engage in that behavior. Um, so, you know, I, I, there is no judgment when people come in. It's but I'm glad we're having this conversation because it's all about taking care of ourselves. Um, so we're talking about STIs today. Um, but I'm, I'm also also happy to talk about the other potential consequence of sex, which is pregnancy and making sure that if you are going to, you know, get pregnant or impregnate someone else, you know, what are the things that you can do to either prevent it or encourage it if that's like the decision that you're making in life. So consequences um, and decisions. Is it true that you can like contract the STI from like a toilet seat or from like, you know, yeah, a toilet seat? 
Can I answer and, this? Yes, please do. So from what I heard, it is not possible to contract a STI from a toilet seat because it needs that like warmth, like the skin to skin contact to transmit. And by the time it gets on the toilet seat into you, it loses a lot of that like bodily fluid that it needs to transmit. Um, I love that answer, Alex. Typically for a sexually transmitted infection, you need kind of like skin on skin contact for those. And I keep saying mucosal, mucosal, think about you know, the vagina or your mouth, right? Like that's kind of like a mucosal surface. You need that skin on skin. That's really good to know because people used to scare me when I was little. This might be funny to some people, but I was scared. <laughs> used to be like, you, you know, if you sit on the toilet seat, um, little, little things can uh, latch on to you. And I just be like, whoa, <laughs> you know, have you really scared? Like, um, okay, should I not use the bathroom at school then? Like, you know, <laughs> so yeah, that's really good to know too. I actually hadn't even thought about that in a while. So I'm glad you brought that up. Cool. Anybody got anything else? Yeah, so you said it has to be like a warm surface. So what if the toilet seat is warm, then would that be like the right temperature or it has to be skin to skin contact? So I am unaware of any sexually transmitted infections for, through a toilet seat. Like that is not like the major means of transmission. Like usually it's a, you know, like a human, you know, body temperature surface, mucosal surface. So, I mean, that's really where your highest risk is gonna be. And if you think about even using a condom, so, you know, how do you protect yourself from getting STIs? Barrier methods are gonna be like the best line of defense beyond just not having sex in the first place. Um, but even if you wear a condom, there are still some mucosal surfaces, or if you put on a condom, you know, like late into the act and there's already been like those mucosal surface contacts, right? Then there's still a risk there for sexually transmitted infection. So um, even with condoms, they have to be used appropriately and early on for them to actually be effective at preventing both pregnancy and the STIs. Can I make a quick note about condoms? Mm -hmm. um, one of the most common mistakes that I hear about is like someone will like try to put a condom on and put it on wrong the first way and then just flip it around. You do not do that. If you do that, throw the condom away, get a new one. Cause it already made contact with the skin that you're trying to protect yourself from. Mm -hmm. Learn something new mm -hmm. today. Yeah, I actually, before we get too deep into it, just in case people listening to this um, and they just want to know, like, off the jump, you know, because just this little bit of a conversation might have people panicking. Hopefully it doesn't, and it's just informative. But <clears throat> where are some places where people can either, A, um, find pregnancy tests or um, get tested for any type of STI or anything, like, within that nature, if they want to just kind of know and be safe and secure and aware of their body. Um, where, what are place, what are, where are places that they could go and maybe even where are places they could go for free? Cause not everybody has access to see a doctor regularly, you know? I think that's a great question for the group. Um, can anybody comment? So in St. Louis, there's the spot, which is located in the Central West End. Um, there's the Contraceptive Choice Center, which is located also in the Central West End. There is Planned Parenthood, which is a great resource. They have a sliding scale payment method, so it goes according to your income. And there's also like, if you have access to a primary care physician and insurance, you could always go to your primary care physician and get a pregnancy test and STI screenings. Also, drugstore pregnancy tests are federally regulated, so those are accurate. Yeah, 
So that was a beautiful answer. And the only other thing I'll say about a pregnancy test is, does anyone know how long after conception does it take for a pregnancy test to turn positive? I really do not. Two weeks. Two weeks. Oh. So typically the pregnancy test, now it may, depending on how good the test is, it may be a little bit sooner, but usually you can expect that it's gonna turn positive for sure around the time of the missed period, which is usually two weeks after conception. So when we figure out if a person is pregnant or not, we always ask the question, well, when was your last period? Nobody conceived at the time of their last period, but typically when the egg gets released and can be fertile and you can get pregnant, it's usually around 14 days after the last period. So that's usually when people get pregnant in a cycle. And you, usually the pregnancy test is not gonna reliably be positive until another two weeks after that. And that's usually around the time of your missed period. So, you know, if you have sex and go take a pregnancy test the next day, it's not gonna be, it's, it's gonna be negative. And that might not be true because you, you could be getting pregnant right then. So normally you have to wait for two weeks for it to reliably be positive and accurate. So does that make Can sense? Can I ask a, two, two weeks after sex, four weeks after your last period. I wanted to ask this question just because I've had a lot of specifically like minors when I was in high school ask me these sort of questions. But if there is somebody who is under the age of 18 who thinks that they might be pregnant or might have an STD. And is there a way that they can get screened or get a pregnancy test that does not involve going through their parents? Yes. I know specifically at Planned Parenthood, 14 and up, you can go seek treatment without parents' consent. However, if you're going to use the insurance that is through your parents, you, your parents might get a letter or might get an email or what have you in the in the mail saying that, hey, insurance is used at Planned Parenthood. Hey, everybody, it's time right now for our Pick the City Up Art interlude, featuring an original piece by Emira and Brandon. Copyright held by St. Louis Story Stitchers. I remember that day when we were in the sun, but you had that gun and so I looked into the distance and said, there's no need for that. We're just having fun. But then you looked at me and said, this, this is what makes me a man and you wouldn't understand. And I didn't. I didn't understand how a piece of iron could make you more of a man than what you already were. But then it came to me, days later, of course, that you were searching for something, lurking over your own shoulder, trying to find answers from your past so you'd hide behind this mask thinking that your broken smile would get you by. But not for long, because then I came along and tried to pick up the broken pieces that you had left behind. You see, time after time, I told you to listen to your right mind, but you still went left and left pieces broken pieces and you could never find the whole you so only half of you lived while the other half died you grew, you grew cold and began to lie about everything just to deny your pain and so it crippled me to watch you grow sour because I told you I told you I'd said I'd seen this sight before. September 11, 2001, the only difference is you were the building and your boys were flying the planes. You made your life stand still so they could burn you down. And word around town is you're killing now. 
Not with the newest J's or with puns and punchlines. They're telling me guns and caution tape, but I'm still trying to remember what happened to you not joining a gang because here you are again behind another cell. And then you tell me I killed him because he was trying to take my cells and see there I knew you'd never be the same because you had some type of beast inside of you that couldn't be tamed. So I decided to stay in my lane. I wanted no part of your games, no Bonnie, no Clyde. I just wanted to owe you back, but we couldn't see eye to eye. <laughs> we couldn't see eye to eye because I don't think you understand. The world doesn't welcome with open arms, only open hands. Perception is not always reality. You see the world through a broken lens, and if I see the world as broken, that's because broken is what it is. Now maybe I shouldn't have joined a gang. But either way, this game is to the death. I'm looking over my shoulders for enemies. If I don't, those memories of me are all you'll have left. You think it's bad that the new me compared to the old me seems worse because I look at me all the time and I promise you I've seen worse this is not a movie there's no rehearsing for the hearse scene that's not how the scene works you know what I think is worse than me killing the game the game killing me first but put the guns down right we're just having fun and so let's say I put them away and then I'm unprotected. And even when playing, mama always said you can never be too safe. So sure, <laughs> sure. Sometimes I miss the old me, but the old me barely knows me. The good die young, I'd rather live slowly. If only you could show me why you miss the old me. I've grown up, I've slowed down. Can't you see that this is old me? I'm in too deep. The more I struggle, the more I sink. The more I love you, the more I think. The more I think, the more I dream. The more I dream, the more I struggle. The more I struggle, the more I sink. And I want to reach out. But I'm afraid that if you grab this hand, I'll only pull you down. And I don't want to take this chance. The more I struggle, the more I sink, sink, sink. Don't you understand? This is quicksand. And I've, I've tried to keep this life from around you. Nobody's ever brought anybody out of quicksand. The person drowning only pulls you down, too. Don't let me pull you down, too. So say, like, somebody got pregnant, and they also contracted an STD at the same time. Would the baby have an STD? Um, that's actually a really good question, and the answer is it depends. Whenever a person comes in for their first prenatal visit, we actually screen for STDs. So we typically will check for gonorrhea, chlamydia, we'll offer an HIV test, we'll check for syphilis. Um, and so we, we typically check all of those things in the first trimester and we typically check them again right before a patient is ready to deliver. Now there are some STIs that if you get during pregnancy can get passed on to the baby. So for example, syphilis. So syphilis is one that can have really severe consequences um, for the neonate. So, um, you know, also something like HIV. So it is totally possible to pass that along to the baby. So it's really important to have good prenatal care to get screened for these things, because if we catch them early and treat them effectively, 
we can often um, minimize the consequences of that. Yeah, I think that was a really good question, um, which makes me think about. Um, so I've I've heard um, from people who have HIV or you know know somebody who've had who has it that their baby uh, came out fine, like the baby didn't have it. So how does that work, if you don't mind? Sure, so um, if a mom has HIV during pregnancy, it's really important to be on the HIV medications to try to keep the load of that virus as low as possible. So if the viral load is low, then the risk of the baby getting infected is significantly lower. And there are other things that we do in pregnancy that we know minimize the risk of the baby getting HIV. So if a person has a high viral load when it's time for them to deliver, then we can give medications like around the time of delivery that help to minimize the risk. And there are certain obstetric procedures that you do or don't do to you know, try to minimize the risk of the baby getting HIV, um, but we have to know it. So that's one of the reasons why we recheck all of those STDs again in the third trimester so that if a mom has any of those things, we can, can treat her appropriately and minimize the risk for baby. The other thing I will say is for HIV in particular, have you guys heard of PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis? Yes. Yeah. Um, the medication that you can take up to 72 hours after exposure to minimize the risk of contracting it. So, yes. So any let's say that you're in a relationship with a person who has HIV and their viral load is detectable. You could take a medication on a, you know, kind of like a daily medication that would also minimize your risk of getting it. So for people who are, you know, at high risk for getting HIV, there's a medication that you can actually take on a daily basis that reduces your risk for getting that infection. So it doesn't fully say you're off the hook. You still, it's still possible while you're on that medication to contract it. It's still possible, but it's significant reduces your risk of having it happen. Okay. That's with any medication, you know, like, that's mm -hmm. the same with, like, say, birth control. That's why birth control was, like, only, you know, like, 90, say, 7% effective or versus 100 because there's still a low risk of getting pregnant while on birth control. And let's talk about birth control for just a second. So, you know, if you took all the birth control options that are out there and you wanted to choose the one that was the most effective, what is the most, what are the most effective forms of birth control? So I think it goes like the um, IUD and then there's the implant, the shot, and the pill is on the lower. And sterilization, it, from my understanding, sterilization is even lower than the implant or no, the uh, IUD. So there's like, there's a hierarchy of how things work. So things that are not really effective are things like the rhythm method. Have you all heard of the rhythm method where it's like, you no. know, of the month where you're most likely to be fertile and you like try to not um, have sex during that time. Or um, another thing people will do is try to withdraw. Those are not effective. You might as well like not even do anything if you're using those. The next level up from that is gonna be things like the birth control pill. So if you use it perfectly and you take that pill every single day, it's actually a pretty good form of birth control. Most of us don't do that. Anything that you have to remember to do yourself and, and relies on humans in that way introduces human error. I'm horrible at taking birth control medications. I would have 20 children if I had to rely on the pill, right? Like that is not going to work for me. Um, so that's not the most effective thing unless you're an excellent pill taker. And then you go to things that you can think about, you know, once a month, like the NuvaRing. So that's a little bit better than every day, but you still have to remember to do that. So that's better 
you know, better effectiveness, but not perfect. If you want to get up to the things that work the best, it's stuff that you just put it there and forget it. So that would be the IUD is an excellent form of birth control. I'm happy to talk about how it works if you all want, because I think the IUD gets a really bad name. Um, the implant in the arm is also very effective. Um, or if you are totally done having kids, a tubal ligation. So I'm talking to teenagers tonight. So like, that's not a good option. One of the <laughs> getting a tubal ligation is regret that you do it. And then your life circumstances change in a little bit. And you're like, oh, I, I really wish I hadn't done that. And it's not like you tie them and you untie the tubes. Like once you do it, you should just consider that permanent irreversible, you're done. Um, so tubal ligation, if a patient is 35, I'm like, cool, fine doing it. If she's 22, I'm like, you're at really high risk for regret if you get this done. So IUD um, and the implant, which is the next one, are gonna be your most effective options because you just put them there and they can stay for years. And then when you decide you want to have a, a child, you can take them out and your fertility returns. Okay. So um, I specifically have polycystic ovarian syndrome and I've never really had the conversation with a doctor because they don't really entertain me. Like what types of birth control methods would be best for me or like anyone with any type of like reproductive health issues? Because I also feel like that's not really talked about and it does happen to teenagers. And so mm -hmm. like kind of feel out of the loop. Yeah. So, you know, with polycystic ovarian syndrome, um, you can use any of the birth control methods. So usually when I have a conversation with people about birth control, the first thing I say is, you know, what is your plan for your family? And this is more, more so for like, you know, 30 year old women, 20 year old women, whatever. What is your plan for your family? And somebody might say, oh, I wanna have a kid next year. And I'm gonna have a different conversation with that patient than someone who's like, oh, I, I don't ever wanna have kids again. Um, and then what's important to you? Do you care about your bleeding side effect profile? Some people really have heavy periods and they wanna get lighter periods. So. I direct them in, in a way that's slightly differently. Some people are like, oh, I feel nauseous and I don't really feel good on them. So I try to figure out what is important to you. And then based on that, what is gonna be the method that fits that need the best? Um, so if you had polycystic ovarian syndrome and you didn't wanna have kids um, for a long time, I think something like uh, Mirena IUD, that's the hormonal IUD, would be a great option. The next one on would be a great option too. Um, do you want me to talk about how the IUD works? Because like I said, people do talk bad about the IUD. And I think it's it's one of the more misunderstood birth control methods. Anybody? Yeah. Yes, please. Yeah. The IUD, it's a little T and it goes into the uterus. So you place it, it's like, just like when you're going in to have like a pap smear or a vaginal exam, right? So it's just at an office visit. So you go in, I usually tell people to take some like Motrin, uh, you know, an hour or so beforehand, because it can be a little crampy or uncomfortable. You put the speculum in the vagina and then there's like a little straw and it puts the IUD into the uterus and then the arms come out. So the little T is sitting in there. Now that T has a little bit of progesterone that's impregnated inside the T. The pill usually has estrogen and progesterone. Estrogen tends to be the bad actor that causes all the side effects that people don't like with the pill. So it doesn't have that, it just has the progesterone. Now, when you take a pill, it goes into your mouth, to your liver, your whole body sees the drug. The nice thing about the IUD is that it just locally acts on the uterus. So every day it just lets a little bit of that hormone out into the lining of the uterus. To get pregnant, every month, lining of the uterus gets thick and fluffy because you need a thick, fluffy lining to support a pregnancy. 
The way the IUD works is it keeps that lining nice and thin so the uterus is not a hospitable environment for a pregnancy at all and you can't get pregnant with that thin lining. Okay, so that's pretty much how it works. Now the, the nice benefit of that is the bleeding profile because every month usually you have that thick fluffy lining and then when your body realizes you're not pregnant, you don't need that thick fluffy lining and so you shed it and you have a period. Well, with the IUD, it never gets thick. So your periods tend to be much lighter. So um, 20% of women after one year of having an IUD have no periods at all. I personally see that as a benefit. But if you're one of those people who likes to have a period every month, then maybe the, the hormonal IUD is not for you. The other 80% of women have much lighter periods. So it's a great bleeding side effect profile. The only downside is in the first you know, few months after you have it, you might have irregular spotting, irregular bleeding. So when people come back after the three months and they're like, I hate it, I'm spotting every day and then it stopped and then it came, I'm like, remember that conversation we had? That's what it does for the first few months, but it gets much better. So that's really the profile of the hormonal IUD. And that one can last five to seven years. And then there's one that lasts for 10 years that's made out of copper. And so if for some reason you didn't want to have any hormones or you had some medication where you couldn't be on hormones, the copper IUD is really the only one, only contraception that's available to you that doesn't have hormones, um, you know, other than like doing a condom or something like that. So the beautiful thing is it lasts for 10 years. That's great. But the copper causes like a little bit of inflammation in the uterus and that's how it keeps you from getting pregnant. And people tend to have heavier and or longer periods. So if, you know, heavier or longer bleeding doesn't bother you, or you, you can't have hormones, and that's a great method. But in terms of the overall side effect profile, I much prefer the one that has a little bit of hormone in it. Yeah. So like with the birth control, would that like cause infertility issues in the future? Like once you get off of them? No. So um, a good question that you're raising, though, is, you know, when does fertility return? So if you take the pill and you miss some miss a couple of doses, you can get pregnant. And if you put in either of those IUDs that I just told you about, once you take them out, your fertility comes back pretty quickly. So um, birth control should not impact your fertility at all. There's one exception, which I would say is Depo-Provera. That's the shot that you get every three months. Now that one is nice because you only have to think about it a few times a year. Um, downsides are on average, people will have about three to five pounds of weight gain in the first year of having it. And with the shot, it can take a little bit longer for your fertility to return. Um, um, it comes back. It's just more of a delay than with the other ones. How long of a delay? Um, so it can it can be several months. So if like so for example, if I had a patient and they were like, I don't want to get pregnant right now, but I want to get pregnant in you know two months, three months, four months, whatever. I wouldn't put them on depo. I would in that situation, I probably would say, well, let's use something like a Nuva ring that you just put in once a month because you want to get pregnant really soon. But any of the other methods, your fertility returns quickly. And to be clear, my take home point is none of the birth control options make you infertile. How often should you get tested for STI? I can answer that. So um, about every three months is the recommendation because some STIs don't show up until about three months after the contraction. Yeah. And it's funny because I was talking to you all, I looked up the, the professional guidelines today because like I said, I take care of pregnancy, um, which sometimes comes with STIs. And so the, the guidelines vary between groups, but I mean, I think that's a totally reasonable recommendation. And another time to think about getting tested is before you're going to have sex with another partner, right? Like it's a, it's a good thing to say, I'm going to get tested. You get tested. Let's share results and make sure before we do this, that we know what's happening. Definitely. I have a quick question. 
Is there a specific reason why you STIs are extremely stigmatized? Like, is there something that we as a community could do to destigmatize STIs? So I think the reason why STIs are so stigmatized is because sex is so stigmatized. Mm -hmm. Like, um, I know particularly in the black community, a lot of black households are like, don't ask, don't tell about sex or like reproduction or like even periods, like anything that's like bodily related, a lot of black households don't talk about. So I think particularly for black people, that's why. I remember as a teenager, um, my mom had me convinced that if I had sex, like a lightning bolt from God was gonna come down from heaven and like strike me in the butt. I mean, yep, yep. that you don't do. One of her friend's um, daughters had gotten pregnant as a teenager. I was like maybe 11 at the time. And she came home and she, her friend was telling her that she regretted that she had never said to her daughter, my expectation is that you are not sexually active. So my mom that day came home hot saying, my expectation is that you will not be sexually active. Um, and the conversation can't stop there, right? And don't get me wrong, my mother was wonderful in so many ways, but this conversation is really hard to have. And I completely agree with that assessment. Like the the all of the negative negativity about STIs totally is related to the negativity around sex. And like I said, sex can be a wonderful, beautiful thing as long as we manage those like consequences and ramifications of it well. Do you believe that um the lack of conversations about um, how to properly protect yourself and just how to avoid STIs and pregnancy in the black community can be like, is like a direct contributor to the disproportionate amounts of un unplanned pregnancies. Yeah, what does everybody else think? I 100% believe that I, I was a student at two separate high schools during my time in high school. So I was a student in a high school in a predominantly black community that wasn't funded very well. And I was a student in Hazelwood West, which is a fairly funded high school. And in my time at the first high school, there was no, there was a lot of like, don't ask, don't tell. There was no sex ed curriculum at all. And a lot of the people there were on the poorer side of the fund life and like there was a lot more teen pregnancies and a lot more STIs at my first high school versus my second because there was no sex ed at the school there was and a lot of people's parents refused to talk about it it was like well my parents didn't talk to me and their parents didn't talk to them so I'm not going to talk to you we figured it out you can figure it out and I think it's yes to talk about for a few reasons because if you get gonorrhea or chlamydia as a teenager, those things are treatable. There are some STIs that you get that, you know, there are treatments, but there are not cures. So the decisions that are made as a teenager have the potential to be lifelong. For example, chlamydia and gonorrhea are the most common STIs that affect people. Um, but chlamydia in particular can often be completely asymptomatic. And that is problematic because if it's not treated, do you know what happens? It can scar your tubes up so that you end up being infertile. Um, and so a lot of women don't even realize that they ever had an STI or a problem until they're trying to get pregnant. And then when they go get the workup to figure out what's wrong, their tubes are completely scarred down because they had an STI years ago that was never treated that scarred their tubes. So taking res responsibility for our actions in terms of our sexual health, it's really important because whether even if it's not symptomatic now, it has downstream consequences for the rest of your reproductive life. What's the difference between um, those two um, 
in a treatment form. So there, there are two different types of infections. So between the two, so they're, they're both infections that can happen because of sexual contact. Chlamydia is more likely to, especially in women, be asymptomatic. Gonorrhea often will have symptoms that um, come along with it, but that's why chlamydia is so dangerous because you don't know that you have it. And so the first time people realize that there was a problem, it's years later and it's too late and they find out because of infertility. Um, what are some of the other sexually transmitted infections that you know about? Um, is I don't know if it's a, still a thing, but used to talk about it a lot. Crabs is that a so that's pubic lice. It's basically a different strand of like hair lice, except it usually is contracted through like you know skin to skin contact through sex. Even with the condom on, you have the um, you run the risk of contracting pubic lice because it's in the pubic hair, and obviously condoms don't cover pubic hair. And you can yeah. actually like see them; they're super super tiny little like mites. Can I add something really quickly, kind of to previously the conversation that we were having about like how not talking about um, protecting yourself can like contribute to um, high numbers of unplanned pregnancy. So I actually went to Hazelwood West too, and I started off there my freshman year. And I remember specifically in my health education class, we were talking about basically healthy eating and stuff like that. And we got to the unit where we were supposed to talk about STDs and how to protect yourself. And my teacher gets up, closed the book, and I kid you not, said with a straight face, Hazel West promotes abstinence. We're not even gonna talk about this. So many kids in my school have never gotten a talk. And of course, like this hadn't really had a huge impact on the school's white community because their parents actually talk to them about these things and are prepared for like, if their children are planning on being sexually active, even though if that's not their preference, they still have ways to protect their children. They take them to get birth control. But because the black community has such a hard time talking about STIs and protecting yourself, um, there's a huge number of unplanned pregnancies in our school and it specifically hit black girls and black, just black people in general. That's who it hit the hardest at our school. And I don't think that a lot of schools realize that not talking about how to protect yourself is disproportionately affecting students of color, not the white kids. Well, and um, is anyone on the is anyone on the line familiar with the contracept contraceptive choice project that happened? Yeah, I yeah, heard about it. So the contraceptive choice um, project happened here in St. Louis, and it pro it was targeted for teenagers and provided everyone with free contraception. So it took away any financial barrier for contraception. And then talk to people just like we just talked about, what are the most effective things? What are the pros and cons of the pill versus an IUD versus the implant? And do you know what the study found? It's not revolutionary. If you equip women with in good information and you take away financial barriers, they make really good decisions for themselves. Like not rocket science, but it was a huge study and it actually was very important in the field of gynecology that says, when you give the information, people make good decisions. Um, so to the point that was made from like the, the high school teacher closing the book, I mean, it's really a disservice. I don't know, it, it just kind of hurts me to know, like, you know, a lot of people don't have the knowledge they need, you know? Um, so like, what are ways to, you know, what are what could be other ways you think that we could help spread this knowledge and the awareness, you know? I think that's an excellent question. And I think the folks in the group are even better equipped to answer that question than me. What does everyone think? I think that we should just um, 
spread information. Like, for example, when I was walking around school one day, I heard some upperclassmen talking about how birth control pills protect against STIs and condoms don't. And I just like, I corrected them because fortunately, like I have parents in the science field. So they told me, they never really like completely informed me about sex and like how to protect yourself, but they did give me that basic knowledge that condoms can protect against STDs. Just taking a birth control pill or any type of birth control alone won't protect you against STDs. So I just believe that correcting ignorance, if you see it, can go a long way. Personally, I'm a very like shy person. So it's hard for me to like, oh, hey, what you said about this actually wasn't correct. So um, I actually took the initiative this year in my high school, um, when, well, not this year, my senior year. I actually handed out condoms at my high school. I think that and just completely destigmatizing sex. Just like changing the way we talk about it, the way we talk about people who are sexually active, just being kind to people and realizing that sex, having sex does not decrease somebody's value. Oh man, like it seems like so many risks. So do you think that like schools promoting abstinence, do you think that that'll be like a wise choice since the risk factor is so high with so many STDs and STIs? And It has actually been proven in several different states, like in studies of several different states, so states where abstinence-only education is predominant versus states where they have actual like STI talks about like these are your risk factors, this is how you can help protect yourself, that states with abstinence-only education have the worst rates of STIs and unintended pregnancies, not only in teens, but young adults who don't have the knowledge. So think about it. If you don't have the, if you don't get the information while you're younger and in high school, by the time you get in your early 20s and you're out on the dating scene, you don't have the knowledge, so you're still out here continuing to like not protect yourself properly um like when it comes to like the accident abstinence only education like i'm not familiar with it or anything like because i don't i haven't learned about it in sex ed but like with that it will be wise if they do give us the information about like the risk and different things like that for the people who choose to go against it but like i feel like if they advocate for more than anything else then that would be like a wise choice but not leaving us ignorant to like the consequences and the risk mm -hmm. yep knowledge is power yeah, I think that information can just go a long way with helping people make informed decisions. Uh, I got a question. Uh, as a parent, you know, so I got a daughter and stuff, so it's like um, kind of hard for me to try to talk to her about certain stuff, you know, so I can't really relate. So I don't, I don't know how to address the issue, you know what I'm saying, when she's coming up. The teens, you know, so that young woman um, years of um, her puberty, how would you prescribe like any questions or methods for me to um, try to engage with her? <laughs> well, and I think the other cool thing is that you're asking the question, right? So you're thinking about it and you want to make sure that you get the knowledge. And none of us as parents come into this world knowing exactly how to be the best parent. Um, so the fact that you're even thinking about it now, I think is the first step. And just having open communication. It, you know, I have three daughters and I'm an OBGYN and I still find those conversations difficult in some ways. Girl, my daughters to make really good decisions for themselves. And so having these conversations is gonna be really important. The other thing is, um, you know, there are pediatric adolescent gynecologists who are also available to help with these difficult conversations, like the conversations such as, 
Is she going to decide to be sexually active? And if so, is she going to be equipped with the tools to be able to adequately care for her body and to protect herself? And so there are also, you know, other support systems available. And the last thing I know, it can be difficult to have the conversations. I remember my mother telling me that um, she tried to surround me with really powerful, phenomenal women who were her friends that would be around me so that when the day came, then I did not feel comfortable coming to her, that there'd be other women that she trusted to give me wise counsel who would be there in my life. So that's the other thing is just in terms of like building the village around her, she might not feel comfortable coming to you and saying, dad, I wanna have sex. But have you surrounded her with other strong people in her life who can help um, guide her um, during that time? Yeah, I just wanted to say, uh, from my from my stance, this was a really a really dope conversation. I learned a lot. Thank you, my pleasure. Well, thanks everybody again for tuning in to another episode of Stitchcast Studio. Um, I hope you all got some great information. Um, I hope you can soak on that, learn something from it, you know, uh, inform somebody else about it uh, because this is something that we all need to be aware of. Um, and, you know, we want to keep everybody safe as much as we can, especially in today's climate. So thanks again, you all. Thank you for listening. And last but not least, we want to give a very special shout out to the Stitchcast Studio sponsors, the City of St. Louis Youth at Risk Crime Prevention Grant of 2020, Stewart Family Foundation, and Missouri Foundation for Health. To learn more, visit storystitchers.org. They say who that, but you already knew that. That beat them story stitches, story stitches, story stitches, story stitches, story stitches.